It's hard to remember the last time the news wasn't troubling. But the past two weeks have been especially rough. Um, on Tuesday night in Chesapeake, not too far from here, six people were shot and killed uh, inside a Walmart where they worked. And then last Saturday night, five people were shot and killed in a nightclub in Colorado Springs. And just a week before that, uh, even closer, three UVA students shot and killed. And, and we just know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and, and meanwhile, it's been nine months since Russia invaded Ukraine. And I read an article yesterday with this headline, US and NATO scrambled to arm Ukraine and refill their own arsenals. And the article goes on to describe the vast amount of weaponry and artillery needed to wage this war and, and just the struggle to keep up the supply. It's like we can't make guns fast enough. It's like, um, it's like maybe the whole world is a raccoon and we have our hand stuck in a trap and we just can't let go of our guns because we think that this is what's gonna bring us life and this is what's gonna make us safe and this is what's gonna bring us peace. Well, today is the first Sunday of Advent, uh, which means that all around the world, I mean, the global church is entering into a season of waiting. And while the world sings, here comes Santa Claus, the church is looking forward to the return of a king, a true king, a real king, who will um, make the world right, who will make all things new. Fleming Rutledge writes this. She says, the church lives in Advent, always. We stand in a dark place, but all the faculties of the faithful are straining like the watchman who stands on the heights with his face toward the coming dawn. In a very deep sense, the entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent between the first and second comings of the Lord in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way, are they, the way they're supposed to be. And I wonder, family, how you feel that tension this morning. We feel it globally, we feel it in our city, we feel it in personal ways, just this profound tension between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be. During these weeks of Advent, we're going to be um, looking at passages from the prophet Isaiah. He gives us uh, a series of images that I think will better help us to understand this one who is to come. And in the passage that Suji read for us this morning, we get a vision of a mountain, a mountain that we're waiting for. Listen again to verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So in the Old Testament, mountains were places where Israel's neighbors would build their temples and their shrines to their gods. Uh, these were infamous places of pagan worship and cult prostitution and human sacrifice. And um, why mountains? Why were mountains the natural place for these kinds of practices and religious sites? Because they are high and lifted up. It's just, it's just kind of natural to think that if heaven and earth meets anywhere, it meets on the top of a mountain. So these were places in ancient times 
where gods lived and made themselves known. And a mountain is also where the God of Israel made himself known. You remember the story of Moses and the burning bush where God reveals his name for the first time to his people. And where does it happen? It happens at a mountain, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. You can read about that in Exodus 3. Later, after God has liberated his people from slavery in Egypt, he leads them back to this mountain. Now it's called Mount Sinai. And what happens? Uh, you remember he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them a way of life that is meant to lead them into flourishing. It's meant to um, help God's people be the people that they were supposed to be ever since God called Abraham and, and sent Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. It's like the truth that flows down from that mountain is supposed to shape God's people in such a way that they become a light to the nations. But it doesn't go so well, does it? I mean, it's not long before the people of God are characterized by injustice and violence and disunity. In the opening of Isaiah, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. This is in chapter 1, so before the passage we read. And Isaiah prophesies this, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And then just a little later, this in chapter 1, Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, uh, return to the Lord and take up your calling to, to be the people of God, to be a blessing, to be a blessing to the nations. And then it's after that that we come to our passage at the beginning of chapter 2 and we get this promise of the mountain to come. Isaiah tells us there will come a day when one mountain is lifted up high above all the others. And which mountain is it? It's the mountain of the house of the Lord, which is a, it's a reference to the temple mount in Jerusalem. House of the Lord is the temple. It's, a, it's the, the mountain that the temple is on in Jerusalem. And it's, when you realize that, it's a crazy image. Uh, if you've ever been there, you know that that's not much of a mountain at all. I mean... Uh, it's, it's just kind of a, a mound. It's a hill. Um, to say that this mountain will be the highest of the mountains is like saying there will come a day when the U.S. men's team wins the World Cup in soccer. <laughs> and it's, just, it's like, eh, it's probably not going to happen. Um, it, it would be maybe more, uh, maybe a better analogy is something like this. It's like saying there will come a day when one of the Dans is, is the tallest of the Christ Prez men. See, that's, I don't mean to pick on, I mean, you could say it about me too. I just, I'm picking on my short brothers. But um, it's a hard claim to make when you've got guys like Scott and Bob around that, 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 that Dan or Dan would be the tallest of the Christ's present men. Um, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. The point isn't about altitude. The point is that there will come a day when the one true God is known and honored and loved as the one true God, not just by Israel, but by the whole world, by all the nations. 
And so the point isn't about topography. The point is about truth and about unity around the truth. But maybe that's just as hard for us to imagine. I mean, can you imagine what Isaiah foretells? A time when there is unity around the truth. I mean, we live in a, we live in a day when, when people don't even believe that there is a truth, much less that um, there could be unity around the truth. It's hard enough to imagine it even within the church, where at least in America, we have a real hard time agreeing on issues like social justice, how best to conduct oneself during a pandemic, which of our political parties offers the best or the least bad way forward, or gun control. Can't get on the same page about that. I mean, even within the church, we have competing visions of the good. We have our little mountains that we just cling to and that we're real reluctant to let go of and walk away from. And Isaiah is holding up a vision not just for the church, but for the whole world. All the nations leaving their mountains and flowing to this one mountain of the one true God, with the result being perfect justice and real unity and a universal lasting peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Such a beautiful image of peace. Um, but is it realistic? How could the nations, with all their competing desires and visions of the good, find unity around one mountain? And we might also wonder if there's, if there's a danger lurking here. I mean, I wondered about this when I was preparing for this morning. When you tell a group of people that their God is the true God, and that a day is coming when, when that God's mountain is going to be uh, lifted high above all the other mountains, it's possible that this will lead to a kind of pride and triumphalism and exclusivism. It's possible that this vision of the mountain, which is all about the end of disunity and injustice and violence, will actually just become one more uh, justification for disunity and injustice and violence. And in fact, um, we've seen that danger become a reality both in the history of Israel and in the history of the church, right? I mean, think of the Crusades. Think of uh, Western missionary endeavors that at times functioned as a kind of colonialism, just riding roughshod over other cultures. Too often we've treated Isaiah's vision like it's something for us to take responsibility for and for us to bring about through political action, rather than a gift for us to receive as God's people right along with the rest of the world. And in the worst cases, we've turned Isaiah's vision of the mountain into a justification for violence and oppression. And so we might worry with good reason that this vision of the mountain is one that we shouldn't hold on to, that we should give up, because there's just so much danger for it to be misused. I wonder how, how can we be people who wait for this mountain in a way that kind of is consistent with the vision of it, in a way that fits what the mountain promises? Is there a way to wait for this mountain 
in humility and peaceably and inclusively. Listen again to verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now remember, the point is not topographical but theological. To say that this mountain will be lifted up is to say that the temple will be lifted up. And to say that the temple will be lifted up is, is just another way of saying that God himself will be lifted up. Because you remember that for, for Israel, um, that's how closely God and the temple were identified. And the temple is where you go to find God and to be in God's presence. And so if we're asking about that, what does it mean for God to be lifted up? What does that mean? What does that look like? It's not a coincidence that when Jesus wanted to teach us his ways, he went up on a mountain. In Matthew, we receive this as the Sermon on the Mountain. And, and the main thing there is not the mountain. I mean, I've been there, they, the, the place where they, as best as we can tell, most likely place where Jesus gave this teaching and it's just not a mountain. It's like a gentle slope at best. The point is not the mountain. The point is the one who gives the sermon, who is the true temple, the place where heaven and earth really meet. The point is Jesus Christ himself. Um, and so when, when we look forward to this coming mountain, we're, we're not looking forward to a, a system or a worldview or a philosophy or a political ideology we're not looking forward to a time when one culture will be shown to be superior to all the others. We're looking to a human being, this one, Jesus Christ. You remember that Jesus begins his mountain teaching in Matthew by blessing, among others, the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, and the peacemakers. And, and later in that sermon, he teaches us not to retaliate, but to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. I mean, his teaching uh, is a call to embrace this way of humble, self-giving love. And so we worry that the truth will be used to oppress and exploit, but Jesus is the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the one who says, the truth will set you free. And family, what I what I think is true is that it's actually only by turning away from this mountain and his teaching that we could ever pursue ways of violence and injustice. Yet we have turned from him, and we do turn from him. We make peace with war, and we tolerate injustice, and we accept a mass shooting like just about every week or so, because we love our modern-day swords. Isaiah calls the people of God to walk now in the light of the Lord, but too often we train for war, and we choose darkness. And so he's giving us a vision, Isaiah is, of the world's future, perfect justice, real unity, lasting peace, and along with that, 
a call to walk in the paths of the Lord right here, right now, but we are prone to wander and we're quick to forget. And, and so another question, what does the one who is to come do in the face of our failure and our refusal to walk in light of his teaching? He goes to another mountain. You remember this in the story. This other one has a name, Golgotha. And then he goes up onto a cross. And the mountain who is to come practices what he preaches. He practices um, peace. And he refuses to retaliate. And he prays for his enemies. And he loves them even to the point of death. He loves people like you and me who follow him faithfully, but at best only sometimes, and who wait for him patiently, but at best only here and there and now and then. And he takes on to himself and into himself all the consequences of our violence and injustice and disunity, and he bears it, and he bears it away. this mountain, this reality, this person, Jesus. He's the truth who unites. And you remember, he's the one who says that, he says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. This is the mountain we wait for. And it is a, it is a triumph, isn't it? But it's not an oppressive or coercive triumph. It's a victory, but it's the victory of death and then resurrection. It's the victory of humble, self-giving love. You remember that at the end of the Bible story in Revelation, John gives us a vision of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, that is Isaiah's vision come to pass. It's the world united around Jesus, and it's the world united around Jesus still in all of its glorious God-given diversity. It's not a vision that will be brought about by us. It certainly won't be brought about by our guns. It will be brought about by the one who gave himself for us and who gives himself for us even now. And so Advent is about waiting. Uh, we wait for the mountain, but this is not a passive sit back and twiddle your thumbs kind of waiting. We wait, but we walk right now in the light of the Lord. You can see the call right there in verse five. Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the light of the Lord. In light of your future, in light of what's coming, live like this right here, right now. And so we wait for a day when all nations will be united by the truth, but as people who follow Jesus now, we practice welcoming and receiving strangers, and we practice loving and learning from people who are very different from us. We wait for the God of perfect justice, but as people who follow Jesus, we pursue justice now to the best of our abilities and we stand up against injustice 
when we find it in our communities. We wait for the day when all nations will give up their guns and beat their swords into plowshares. But as people who follow Jesus, we anticipate that future reality and we bear witness to it by practicing the ways of peace now, by refusing the way of violence. We wait for the mountain, but as we wait, we practice the way of Jesus. O Christ Prez, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.